antibacterial. Good morning. It's actually Thursday morning, and we are actually doing our podcast at the right time because A, we're up early, and B, where else do we need to be? So I'm Dana. And I'm Maz, and we're up early mostly because our dog needed to go and urinate. Yeah, and also because when you go to bed at 8 30, yes. if you sleep till 5 30, you've still gotten quite a lot of sleep. If anyone wants to know what empty nesters do during a lockdown, <laughs> that's it. It's that You watch some Outlander, you yep. go to bed. Yep. <laughs> we are the party animals of North Dakota. <laughs> yep. Yep. Defying, defying uh, social distancing, one episode of old television at a time. Um, so it's interesting. One of the things that I think Dr. Mary and I pretty routinely come across when we sit down to sort of plan at least the first part of these conversations is how often we are in sync. So I just said to him, what do you want to talk about? And he said, what do you want to talk about? And I said, I want to talk about um, if we imagined where you would be had you not gotten sober. And he said to me, well, that's incredible. That's what I wanted to talk about. So um, let me ask you the question, Dr. Mary. Let's go back. Let's say that COVID-19 is happening in March of 2016, not March of 2020. Uh, this is mm, 10 months before you have that epic nosebleed. What do your days look like in March of 2016? going back I think with all, with all this starting and with the you know we, we're working from home I'm assuming we're going to be in the same situation that spring break's been extended two weeks and spent two weeks getting ready to teach online and it's all going on I, I, I don't think I'd have been able to have pulled that off as easily as I think I have and I also honestly think that the only thing that really would be going through my mind is will the liquor stores be shut and that's something I thought about just this morning thinking you know maybe this is worth talking about I mean if in an ideal world someone who is suffering from that would actually be listening to this but more than likely someone who knows someone who probably knows someone who may have that thought rattling around their head might be able to think about them and check in on them um I even noticed it myself. Just I was just telling Dana last week when they were talking about things that stay open that are essential. Um, you know, grocery stores, obviously hospitals, but, um, universities have access to limited people. The, the state governor of Minnesota just said the university system is essential, so you know we can actually still go into the building if we need to. But I said to Dana, it's funny that liquor stores are still open, and I didn't want to sound like an ex-smoker. If you ever quit smoking and then gone into a room, you hear people that complain about the smell of the smoke and you think, well, you used to smoke. But it is odd. And it's all very well for me. I haven't had a drink in over three years, but why liquor stores are, uh, you know, are, are considered essential? But if they're not, then someone who needs that drink and can't get it, that's... That's, that's going to be a rough time for them, just mentally. They're gonna be, their heads gonna be going like a mouse wheel. Well, and I will say from from my perspective, 
if liquor stores shut and it, and we're back in 2016 and you started to go through delirium tremors and it's just you and me at home a i think it's possible you could have killed me and i i don't say that lightly or flippantly um if you go back to uh must be three a b and c of this journey where i talk about what happened when i came back to the hospital room and dr mary was absolutely unequivocally out of his mind uh i can't imagine no, what can't. that would have looked like at home I, that is positively terrifying to me to think about anybody living through that because i would have had no idea what was happening think about you know you and i we we have this rather fantastic three bedroom cottage that's yeah. this kind of it's what i know, call it we got a we got a fully finished basement but if you've got a, someone who's suffering from violent delusions in their house where are you going to go yeah i um we we have talked a couple of times in our walks and and in you know these two weeks that we've been home together about liquor stores and boy it's a really interesting thing because no liquor is clearly not essential for life but if you're an alcoholic i i'm not sure that it's not better to maintain your alcoholism through this than to subject your family to what may happen if you are deprived of alcohol and also yourself i mean because you were put into a coma i don't know how long that would have lasted but i can tell you this when you got put into that coma you know they they were giving you all kinds of incredible sedatives and they kept saying to me well this one will knock him out and it didn't and then they would give you a, a more robust one and say well this one will knock him out and it didn't and you were getting more and more frantic and this is over the course of hours that day um by the time it finally took you down a that's how we ended up in intensive care because you were on such incredibly um powerful sedatives that they had to put you in intensive care but also they said to me at that point well this shouldn't take more than 24 hours and you were in a coma for 5 days because every time they kept trying to bring you out they would bring you far enough to a very very um mild consciousness and your whole body would shake so violently they would have to put you back into the coma. I watched that happen multiple times. So, I again, I just say from a from an outside perspective at the spouse or the roommate or the person who's living with the alcoholic, I, I don't know what I would have done. Yeah, it's hard to imagine. I mean, <laughs> I don't even remember any of this, but I can't It, it 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 would truly be frightening. I mean that's and that is a worst mate I don't know if it is a worst case scenario. I've heard you know stories of people that remember their withdrawal and I just think good god. Well and and maybe it's not so bad for everyone because 
um, one of the people that you and I have connected with through this period because he also has um, has acknowledged that he has a problem. Uh, the reason that I know this is because of our mutual friend who reached out to me and I tried to prepare her for him going through this and he never did. So, or if he did, it was, it was much more, um, managed, yeah, managed or by him. I mean, he, he was in the hospital, but he didn't have to be treated from what I know. So maybe not everybody's response is as violent as yours. It would make sense that everyone will be different, but you know, the fact that I had a, such a, I mean, I'm not really a violent person. So if I, Oh my gosh, you're the least violent person I've ever met. Yeah. So for that to happen to me, I mean, it's, it's all it's all very frightening because we're talking about a worst case scenario here, but it's, well, it needed and, to be addressed. And we're talking about one person's experience. I mean, the the thing that I keep thinking about, and um, I have to sort of chuckle at the irony of, is so uh, I have I have an experience of one. And not only do I have an experience of one, but my one experience happened once. So I am in the scientific world. I'm a failed yeah. researcher because, <laughs> I, you know, we sort of keep laughing about this test Maybe case we've got an of outlier, one. An outlier. <laughs> yeah. A statistical outlier, right? I, there. <laughs> I think it's probably not time to make bold proclamations about what happens to but all the, alcoholics the based is, on our experience. If this happens, or you know <coughs> someone that is, you know, that this could happen to someone in a close, you know, in a very small space during a lockdown, then, you know. Uh, some timely advice would help. Now, the, the social media is also inundated. Dana brought this up. I haven't actually seen a lot of it, but um, some of Dana's friends on Facebook are saying, yep, just got my second, what was the phrase? My um, my two-week supply of alcohol for the second time this week. Now, doing that, there's a world of difference between that and someone who is an alcoholic, but... That also goes into, you know, going stir crazy. Some people are treating it, treating this like a holiday and everyone does drink more on a holiday. But as long as you're not addicted... Not you, Dr. To, well, not anymore. No, I mean, let's just be clear. But what I mean is there's there's that social aspect of it where if you're not an alcoholic and you can just have a few drinks and wake up like the next morning and go, oh, God, I wish I hadn't done that. And then you don't immediately start drinking or don't think about it. You're not an alcoholic. You can handle your alcohol. That's fine, and you know maybe there's a that's the reason why liquor stores should stay open. But again, if you want to take this from the point of view of someone who does have the disease of addiction, that is different. So, for those of you who have just put something out, going yeah, I just bought some more wine. That doesn't don't think that you might. I mean, you, you we could all do with cutting down on the drink, but you know you're not gonna. I don't think you've got a ways to go to becoming an alcoholic if you're if you're not one yet. Just just if you're just drinking slightly more because of a a, a, a social distance lockdown. Yeah, I I mean, you know, I I think there is something super peculiar about how jokey we are about alcoholism um 
or not alcohol. We're not jokey about alcoholism. We're jokey about alcohol. There's a difference. Um, and we've, I think we've kind of touched on this and danced around it. And I think I've come out so far and said that one of the things I have discovered about this that's interesting to me is this class idea. So if you're drinking expensive alcohol or you're drinking the correct color wine with the, the um, protein on your plate, then that's not an alcoholic. Alcoholic, let me put the emphasis on the right syllable. Um, that's a sophisticated person of means drinking, uh, which Dr. Mary, I guess, isn't wrong. If you can, if you can manage that, I guess that's fine. But here's here's what I think is challenging. Dr. Mary thought he was managing his drinking. Yes, I certainly did, which is uh, one of the many problems which was the start of my rehab because I still thought I knew everything which is damn you thought you knew everything I did it is it, it's almost embarrassing when I was re, when I was writing it's not almost embarrassing yeah, it's actually, embarrassing it is, it is completely <laughs> it is actually completely embarrassing and if Joanne Spearing is listening to this she can slap her palm on the table I go I knew it <laughs> he used to be an idiot <laughs> um yes I did um the short answer to that. Well, I I think just to, to wrap this piece up. Who's that? It's something Ferguson. Who's that um, Scottish guy that does late night TV? Oh, uh, Craig. Craig. When I was in rehab, we, they, you watch a lot of videos about, you know, rehab and addiction. It was important talking. For, I gotta to, blow my to actually see um, how many people in everyday lives actually are... are um, people that are alcoholic or drug addicts or you know people that have been through rehab and don't drink and it was Craig Ferguson who actually said this phrase it was the first time I heard it when we were watching a documentary about it and uh, he said being an alcoholic is it, this is the deal he said one drink is too many and ten isn't enough oh yeah I love I remember you telling me that and the more I thought about that I thought yeah that was always the problem I'll have I'll just have one to calm me down and then you don't you either subconsciously, deliberately don't pay any attention to how many you actually drink, or you're in denial, or a bit of both, or you, you really are, as the phrase goes, um, not you, you're not empowered and you're hopeless against the law of alcohol, and that's the addiction. Well, so I'm I'm in this uh, sort of interesting personal spot. I have at times drink, drink, drunk, because I never know the tense of that word. Um, drink. Man, I don't like that. It sounds funny to me. I'm not saying consumed it's Consumed alcohol. There we go. <laughs> I have at times consumed alcohol to more level than I can or should, because I have a very small tolerance, um, which I have never minded because it has kept me from over drinking, but I can pretty easily have had too much. And one of the things that I think is um, an interesting piece is let's say, let's say I come home from work and I'm starting dinner. So I've got BBC news on Prairie public. 
And I might open a bottle of Sauvignon Blanc, which is kind of the wine, the white wine that I drink. Okay, so I'll pour myself. I never have a full glass of wine because I never use wine glasses. They're always little. So let's say I pour myself three ounces. That's not a full pour. I think a full pour is five to six. So I have three ounces while I'm making dinner. And then I have a little bit more, maybe three ounces more while I'm eating dinner. And then if we go downstairs to watch one of our Outlander episodes, I might have three more. Suddenly I've had nine ounces of alcohol, which is way too much alcohol for me. So then I go to bed and I might, I mean, by nine ounces, I, I, I don't know what buzzed feels like when people talk about how much they love being buzzed. I've never, ever in my life had the amount of alcohol that makes me go, oh my gosh, finally I'm fun. And perhaps that's just because I think I'm fun anyway. Um, but I never feel fun at that point. I feel uh, heavy and already icky. So then I go to bed and somewhere in the middle of the night, I wake up and I'm up for probably two hours and I don't sleep very well anyway, but this is a different kind of wake up. Um, and if I've had red wine, then I'm up and I may as well be in a pool of sweat. And we could certainly talk about, oh, it could be pre-menopause, but who cares? I don't care what it is. It comes about because of alcohol. So I haven't had any alcohol in four weeks um, because I just, at some point during this journey, I sort of thought, I think I'm done. Now, does that mean I'm never going to have a glass of wine again for the rest of my life? No, it doesn't because I kind of like wine. But I haven't missed it for one second. I'm sleeping better. My point is, through all of this, if someone like me, who's a married to an alcoholic, so I know more about it than I ever did, B grew up in a household where cough syrup was forbidden because it might have alcohol in it. Most of them do. And C don't enjoy being buzzed and or drunk. If I can drink nine ounces without paying any attention to it, what does that, we can't judge an alcoholic who comes home from work, wants to reward himself for having had a successful day at work, gets a whiskey, continues that through the night and maybe into the morning. And that to me is where you and I have something of value to talk about Hmm. because I, on one hand, I absolutely do not understand the journey you've been on. And on the other hand, I absolutely see how it starts because I could drink nine ounces of wine every night and pretty soon it would go to 12 and then it would go to 15 and then pretty soon I'd be drinking a bottle and then pretty soon, I mean, you know, whatever. If, if I let it go unchecked, that's not to say everybody who's drinking wine suddenly finds themselves somewhere in their journey an alcoholic. But I can see how it happens very, very unconsciously. Yeah, I mean, there is, there are some genetic markers. I think we talked about this before. It doesn't, I mean, there is a world of difference between liking a drink and then being an alcoholic. There, there is that difference. I mean, I'm, I wouldn't say unfortunately. I'm actually uh, three years into this. I mean, this is the healthiest and happiest I've been since I remember. Um, 
you know, but I've also been, we've talked about how lucky I am. My, you know, my marriage survived and probably got better. Probably. Well, <laughs> let's not qualify, Dr. Mary. Have you not read anything yeah. I wrote? My, my marriage is, well, our marriage is fantastic. Um, but, you know, my, my, my internal organs are in very good shape. Uh, you know, that's how I, I kept my job. I got promoted in my job. Your boy likes you. Yeah, my boy likes me again. Yeah, it's incredible. We, <coughs> excuse me, still holding on to that cough. We were out walking yesterday and saw some neighbors who we always say hello to, but we don't know. Um, I'm embarrassed to admit I don't know their names. So if you're listening to this, you're going to know who you are. We. Will you please introduce yourselves next time we see you? And if you don't, I will. Um, oh, I will too. I know where this is going. So we're walking. We see these people. And he comes towards us. And, you know, in this social distancing time, it's... Where's my stick? It's unnerving. <laughs> I need to keep them at this distance. But he came up to Dr. Mary. And he got pretty close to us. And he said, I've been following your posts. And congratulations, and he put his arm around you, which I thought was so fabulous. It was a very nice moment. And then he said this, you look great because you do. I mean, if if nothing else had come out of this except just physically losing your waterbed status and becoming the uh, super snappy Irishman you used to be again, think about that. Can we say that again? The super snappy Irishman. That, that, that's kind of that's nice. <laughs> we'll so be right back. After so break. stop it. So thanks, neighbor. Uh, yes, I'm thank looking you. forward to meeting you by name, and I'm sorry we've only lived here 13 and a half years, so you can understand why we haven't met you yet. In, in our defense, we actually know the name of the dogs in our neighbor. We know our neighbor's and we dogs. We refer to them true. as say uh, Nick's parents. Yes. Or Yes, we do, but that's... Loki's parents, or yeah. the other Lily's parents. Yes. Uh, you pulled something up. Are you reading that? I am. Okay. Speaking of thanking people that have reached out to us, I'll actually, um, just this morning, or by the time difference, I guess, tomorrow morning for him, my very oldest friends, Jason Cooper, who now lives in Australia, just sent me a message and it says, I am loving the, pod- the podcast beyond loving. I'm hearing the maz that I knew and love, warts and all. Makes me proud and afraid. Proud that you are smashing it and afraid I c- you can call me on my stuff. So thank you for that, Jason. Jason also um, used to touch base with Dana when I was in, re- well, actually when I was in the coma, those two were talking from other sides of the world. So I uh, want to thank you for that too, for from all that distance checking in to see how Dana was doing. And hopefully when the world reopens, I might um, succumb my fears of the wildlife in Australia or we could make a trip over to see you and your family. Absolutely. But mate, I want to meet somewhere where there's none of this wildlife from Australia because that stuff scares me. It's the spiders, Jason. If you can uh, guarantee there are no face-melting spiders in your home, uh, we'll come when we can. Snakes that can eat kangaroos. Kangaroos are my height. <laughs> I, I think the uh, short answer to this is perhaps not an outback uh, well, excursion. Uh, on the BBC website last summer, there was somewhere... Dr. Mary, are we going to go down? No, I've just got to say this. Somewhere in western, no, northern Australia, there was, there was reported to be something 
leaving half-eaten crocodile carcasses. Doesn't Jason live in Sydney? Doesn't matter. It's a big country. Yes, it is. Northern Australia is nowhere near Sydney. Did you get the quote, something? Well, okay. (coughs) Anyway, Australia, I'm sure you're all lovely. Lovely place. And more to the point, what a really fabulous thing to write, Jason. I wish you could have seen Maz's face. Um, Thank you. Because you know how important you have been throughout his entire life. Yes. To him. So thanks for that. Um, I want to just talk about your post this week, your final post. Yeah. I have read it now dozens of times and I cry every single time because it is so... I, I, I have really tried to find the word or words that I think speak to what you did this week. And I, I just, for whatever reason, am not able to do it. But it is so simple. And I mean that in the most profound way. You didn't, you didn't embellish it. You didn't, um, you didn't shy away from it. You just leaned into it. You know what it is? It's sacred. There is a sacredness to you bringing us all into that graduation moment where people were pouring in sand into the moments where you got your um, one, two, and three year sobriety chips. Maybe that's what it is. There is a holy quality to how you talk about this experience. And it's interesting because you are not a, in any sense of the word, traditionally religious person. Um, in fact, I my thought is that you shy away from it or are almost um, repelled by it, which is not a criticism because I kind of am too these days. But, but there is something very spiritual about the way you talk about this experience and I think that's what I find so profoundly moving. Oh, thank you. I was actually, when I was writing this, I just looked at what was written on my motivational stone that Joanne gave me. It just said truth. I've kept that in mind for three years and I just thought, well, if I'm going to do this, I might as well just plainly write the truth and that's what I did. Yeah. Now it's it's. I didn't flourish it. Um, I think years of um, you editing unnecessarily <laughs> words out of everything I wrote. Right. Um, I was thinking about the first. I, the first time I was ever asked to write a letter of reference for someone who was going to medical school when I first started teaching. One of my first students, Moses, who actually who actually. Um, Gosh, he must be working in a hospital Yeah, he's, now. he's a cardiologist now. He actually sent me a congratulatory um, LinkedIn message when I got promoted, and he sent me a message saying that he's, uh, he's been following this stuff too. Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, um, yeah, so I wrote him this letter of reference for medical school. It was three pages long, so Dana cut it down to a page, um, despite my protests, and said, this is what you need to say, this is all I want to hear. And funnily enough, he got into medical school on his stripped-down letter of reference. Yes. So I try to keep it simple. 
Well, that's good. If my uh, abject shaming of you over the years where this is concerned had any role to play in the beauty of this piece, then I say you're welcome. Yes. I, 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 my, my PhD thesis would have been a lot longer, too, if I hadn't been for the <laughs> heroic efforts of uh, Professor Keith Roberts and Dr. Maureen McCann from editing that, too. You know, I wonder, though... Um, Because you and I disagree in this, this idea of whose fault it is, if there's fault to be blamed and made, that you became an alcoholic. You know, I, I, <coughs> I believe I played a role in it. And I don't say that from a place of, well, I was so important in your life. Of course I played a role. And I don't say it from a place of pride. But just think about this conversation we just had. There's no question I shamed you for that letter. That letter was ridiculous. If I had gotten a love letter from anyone in my life as flourishy as the letter you wrote for this young man, we are, for this young man to get into medical school, I could have been married four times before I met you. (coughs) So, so I didn't kindly help you edit that thing. I was probably, we'll go with the word mean, about how preposterous I thought that was. Um, and I think there's something to be said for that was a quality that I brought to a lot of our marriage. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop this and we're going to start the next segment right here. from our previously scheduled break. So this idea of, uh, you know, I wasn't always super nice to you. And uh, you, I don't know if you know this, but you're not American. Yet. Well, you'll never be American. You might have American citizenship, but there is something about the internalization of where you grow up. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And I don't say that because, oh, I'm an American, so I'm the best. There's a lot of downside to being, to having that American mindset. But my point is, you know, I, I, um, I think I was fairly intolerant of a lot of things about you because they were not what I recognized. So that is where it's those areas that I feel like are where I played a role in you starting to feel disengaged and unhappy. And then the, the other piece and this, this I think is maybe the most valuable thing I learned in this period for me was when we went to those marriage therapy sessions with an admittedly pretty bizarro therapist. But he was awesome. He was well, weird, but he was yeah. good. Also, he kept his office about 42 degrees, so I, I'm i not sure what that was about. But um, the first day we met, he drew a... Oh, the triangle. He drew a triangle. Yeah. That is the math word I was looking for. Sorry, Mr. Lalum, my 10th grade geometry professor. I couldn't even come up with the word triangle. Um... <coughs> 
not for your lack of trying, sir. So uh, he drew a triangle and he said to you, here's you, here's Dana. What's your third thing? What, where are you focusing? And you said, alcohol. And that made sense to both of us. And then he drew another triangle and he turned to me and he said, here's you, here's Maz. What's your third thing? And he asked it exactly the same way with no judgment, with no preconceived idea. And I was shocked because I think until that moment, I felt like this was your thing and I had been like an unwilling um, sidecar rider or something. And in that split second of what's your third thing, I realized my third thing was Quinn. Quinn was where I put 90% of my focus and I allowed you to come along sometimes and sometimes not. And as soon as I recognized that, so at this point, Quinn was 21 years old. He was in his junior year of college, sophomore year of college, I guess. So he was, um, yeah, he would have just turned 21. Um, I, uh, that, that was such an illuminating moment for me because it, it took it from your problem that I was an unwilling member of to our problem that I had been an active participant in. Now, I, that doesn't that doesn't mean that we're necessarily equal in it. It doesn't matter. I don't ever think about it in, well, you were 70% of the problem and I was 30%. I don't think of it that way, in part because that would be math. Um, but... <laughs> Who do you have to thank for percentages? Oh, gosh. <laughs> I don't know. Where, when do you even learn percentages? Mr. McIver, maybe? No, that was algebra. Do you learn percentages in algebra? I don't think so. Believe it or not, one of the three undergrad degrees our son has is in math. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Didn't get percentages. Maybe Mrs. Christie? I feel like you probably learned percentages in junior high. Anyway, um, I apologize to all my math teachers. You all tried. Anyway, I think there is, um, I think there is something really remarkable about it not being one person's problem, it being a family's problem. And there's, it's remarkably good and it's remarkably bad. We all suffered because of your alcoholism, yes. but we all contributed to it as well in, in whatever way yeah. we did. Your family, my family, your colleagues, my commitment to Quinn, we all did. So I think if you marry someone who is an addict when you get married, you don't necessarily have to look to where you contributed. But I did not marry an addict. I married someone who used alcohol and maybe used it more than I would have wanted you to, but certainly was not addicted to alcohol when no, we got married. It wasn't um, but you became an alcoholic on my watch. 
Yeah, and I try to explain that in, in, in our blogs, you know, that when did it start? And so many people have asked me. I still don't know. But um, I think it was Rod, my, my first counsellor. Um, he told me I'd drive myself crazy trying to find out. Oh, that's interesting. He said, you know, you could you could spend years trying to work out what was the moment when that happened and I started drinking too much. I thought about it. I did take his advice because I've stopped. I, I actually can't... Was it one thing? Was it a number of things? I tried to explain it as best I can. It was just... It just kind of... Looking back, the best I can come up with is it caught up with me. Well, that's sort of my point I'm making about me drinking nine ounces of wine sometimes. Nobody... Like, I don't open a bottle of wine and think, oh, I'm going to drink nine ounces tonight. It just sort of happens. And my point is, for me, only for me, not for anybody else, but for me, I don't want to just sort of drink nine ounces of wine multiple times a week. That's not appropriate for me. And again, because of now being with you and watching these three years, I'm hyper aware of it because... It's not a misstatement to say that some of why I was perhaps drinking nine plus ounces of wine um, on a, I can't even say semi-regular, maybe twice a week basis was because when you were drinking, it was the only thing I could do to engage you. Mm. So if I wanted you, and I talk about this in one of those blog posts, if I wanted you to go on a bike ride... The only way I could ever get you to say yes, and I could hardly ever get you to say yes, but the only way was if I would say we could bike to Doolittle's and have a glass of wine. So then I was drinking more too, because it was the only thing you and I could do together, because it was the only thing you would say yes to. So I, I think it's, maybe for some people there is that, well, you know, I saw this horrific thing happen in my life. And I started drinking then. Maybe there are people who can say that. But for the great majority of people, I would imagine it happens slowly, unconsciously, and very accidentally. Yeah, I mean, there are some, quite a few people. I know quite a few people that they're suffering from post-dramatic stress disorder. Um, some of them, um, here's the tragedy of it. A lot of people I was in rehab with, it turns out they had undiagnosed bipolarism mm. or bipolar disorders. They were yeah. self-medicating with alcohol or drugs or both. So in rehab, they're on the anti, <coughs> they're on the right medication and they start feeling great. But you know, what happens when you leave that environment? Yeah. And maybe your insurance doesn't cover any of the the drugs you need. What happens then? And, you know, there was noble people who lost careers over the fact that they were suffering from post-traumatic stress. That wasn't me. Yeah. Yeah. You really, from my, from my incredible background research and understanding of addiction, you really just accidentally became an alcoholic. I think I got, that's true. I think I just gave up. I was just fed up and gave up. I mean, the phrase you kind of like is, um, you know, I am now a happy, smiling alcoholic. 
Well, I, I didn't coin that. No, but that's, that's the thing. Yeah. The point is, I am. That's what you say. Yeah, it's find a happy, smiling alcoholic and see what they're doing because, you know, I am a non-suffering alcoholic. But oh, to go back three and a half years, I was a miserably depressed drunk. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a really great way to say it. I like smiling, happy alcoholic. Oh, so do I. Yeah. Yeah, I knew that. I was I was too afraid to do anything about it. That's the whole thing. Well, I, nobody, oh, you know care. what? It gets to the point where you just don't care. Nobody wants to admit that they've fallen apart, which is what you have to admit. I mean, if you if you catch your four year old coloring on the walls. The four-year-old's instinct is going to be to lie and say, I didn't do it. Because nobody wants to disappoint the people they love. Nobody wants to get caught being naughty. That's, that's why you're the alcoholic, well, addicts, alcoholics, people suffering from this disease. That's what, that's what happens to us. We become chronic liars. Yeah, because that's everybody's first instinct if they're yeah. caught doing something they shouldn't be doing. The difference is you believe it. And it becomes a stress. Always know when you're going to get caught, even though you don't realize it. It's stressful. I had to think of lies all the time, and I just haven't had to. Yeah. It's great. So I want to have one moment of reality here, because I think it's important. And I'm sorry that you don't want to talk about this, but we're going to talk about it anyway. Okay. <laughs> I just want to say this. We've now been home together. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for two weeks. And, and I finally know, I know what Dana's going with this, but I'd like to point out to anyone that owns a dog, if you can own a dog, anyone that lets a free-spirited animal in their house, depending on how much of a hippie you are. I always wonder what Lily did when we went to work. Now I know, and I don't worry about it anymore, she just sleeps. Yes. She has this routine of which room at which time of the day she sleeps in, but that's all she does. Dr. She's Mary, happy. you're diverting from the point. Oh, carry on. Uh-huh. Uh, it has not been all peace and love. Now, there's been no, like, screaming, yelling, fighting. I mean, there's always screaming because I'm loud. But there's been, stop it. But there's been no fighting. There's been no, like, threatening. There's been no, um, you know, no point of I thought, oh, my gosh, this is going to push him back to drinking. And to I, mention one of Dana's theater teachers, we haven't reenacted West Side Story or anything. Da -da 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 There's a reference. Ba -da. <laughs> I know. Well done. Thank you. Um, but even we who are in this sort of ludicrous marital bliss have been niggly at each other, to use a Dr. Mary word. We've been nitpicky and we've had tiny disagreements that have kind of blown up into stupid short-term arguments. Yes, we've had to write stern letters of disapproval to each other. <laughs> but then taking a turn about the room and everything's been fine. It's true. It's amazing how refreshing a turn about the room really can be. I just readjust my corset. <laughs> We're making Jane Austen references in case you're thinking we've lost our minds. Um, but I... Boy, this time is not super easy, even when it's super easy. I have been thinking so much these weeks about the parents now who are home with two, three, four kids 
trying to homeschool and do their jobs and... Can I interject for a second? Please do. So parents, um, as an educator, here's something for you to mull about. Maybe it's not the teacher's fault. Oh. Next time you go to parent-teacher's <laughs> conference, remember this time, everyone. Take a moment to reflect. <laughs> that goes out to everyone I know who's brave enough to be a high school teacher. Yeah, that's true. Anyway, this is a stressful time. So um, my encouragement to you is to just acknowledge the stress. I out loud. <laughs> <laughs> Acknowledge the stress. Laugh it off. If you can, laugh it off. Go for a walk if you need to. I mean, if you're in India or Spain, do not go for a walk. You'll end up in jail. Five years. It's incredible. But my point is, to get to this, it's okay to feel uh, anxious or stress or irritation with your spouse. And it's okay to, to be... Um, irritable try to manage it try to maintain it and don't use alcohol to navigate it because that's where I think the slippery slope can start pretty easily and so that is the end of my soapbox discussion of that Dr. Mary do you have anything else to say? um I want to thank everyone who's been messaging us and saying, you know, the the readings, the videos, the podcasts. I know some people are just waiting to listen to the podcast, so thank you for all, all of those who have been listening to those, even those of you who haven't said anything, those of you just watching this and thinking, oh, if you got anything out of this, then I'm happy for you. If you If this helps you think better thoughts in any way I, I'm, I'm glad that we've done it I'd like to thank Dana for suggesting this journey in the first place and Patrick Kirby thank you for your help in pulling all this helping us pull all this together and Jay, Jay Evans Jay Evans um, thank you for the, the pictures and Lana Whiting for the editing thank you for helping us pull all this together so one week to go Dr. Mary yeah the, the epilogue the world was very. Does anyone else when we get this? this? Every time someone says the word epilogue, I always think of that TV show, The Streets of San Francisco. Never heard of it. No, it was um, um, Michael Douglas's first acting gig as a TV actor. Okay. It always ended. It was at this police show in um, San Francisco. San Francisco Funny enough. And at the end of the episode, it always it always came up with epilogue, where they rounded it all up. Oh, well, I hadn't thought of that, but I will now. Yeah. Anyway, Saturday... Unless I made all that up in my head. I don't think I did. We'll uh, talk that... We'll, we'll fact check that for next week. Um, Saturday is the launch of the final week, 9A. So, um, thanks for saying yes to this, Dr. Mary. Oh, thanks for suggesting. You took a great big risk, and it has more than paid off. For a number of people, I think it's helped. It's you know, for the people that has helped, it's helped us too. too. It's been great for us. It was interesting for me to write all that down. Yep, it was interesting for me to read it. So yours too was interesting to read yours. Well, we're going to continue this um, adoration fest. We'll mercifully let you off the hook from it. Have an excellent day. Stay safe. Yes. Wash your hands. Uh, 
put some hearts up in your window and uh, oh, actually, one take thing. care. Dana mentioned this um, the last time we were actually able to go out for lunch when all this was starting. Dana said to me, your cladding looks really shiny and it suddenly dawned on me, that's probably because I've been washing my hands a lot more than I usually do. So if your jewelry is sparkly right now, it's because you're actually washing your hands enough. There's my public health announcement for the day. <laughs> get, your, get your wedding rings sparkly by washing your hands. Yes, and avoiding COVID-19. Stay safe, everyone. We'll talk to you next week. Bye.